1: Welcome to Basic Folk. This is a podcast where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House. Thanks for finding us uh, here today. And I will say that our definition of folk is quite broad on this podcast. So I am very pleased to have Kevin Morby on the pod today. The music of Kevin Morby has colorful textural layers, much like the human who creates it. On his newest album Sundowner, Morby is embracing a mellow yet dramatic sound that runs parallel to his current surroundings of his hometown Kansas City. He moved back to a house he purchased in 2015 recently and has been working on music relentlessly since then, which is what produced the songs on the new record. He recorded the album in Texas with Brad Cook in order to capture the essence of the Midwest. After living and making music on both coasts, he wanted to create something that was entirely landlocked. On Basic Folk, we talk about the process of writing and creating this new album, Morby also talks about his experience with panic attacks as a young man and his current relationship with fear and anxiety. He talks about the death of musician Jamie Ewing, who was his best friend. Jamie died of an overdose 12 years ago, but has had a huge impact on shaping Kevin's life. Morby also talks about his partner Katie Crutchfield, who is known as Waxahatchie. This is the first record that Katie's been in Kevin's life for the entire creation of an album. It's interesting to hear the effect they both have on the other's music. I also got him to talk about his painting, which you can find at Kevin Morby Arts and Farts on Instagram. Kevin's a friendly, insightful, and sensitive person, which is reflected in everything he creates. I'm grateful that he found the time for the interview. This is a really good one, so I'm glad that you're able to check it out. We're going to listen to a song from his new album. This is Sundowner, the title track, and then we'll get to our conversation with Kevin Morby on Basic Folk.
0: Hey man, where'd you get your tail? Oh, I'd like to have that sunny. in me. Yeah, like the sun But I start to run Or well, the moment that The sun runs from me I am a sundowner So livingly. I am a sundowner Don't let the sun go down on me
1: Um, thank you so much for doing this again absolutely and so i've got questions that just sort of like span your whole life so let's do it here we go all right Um, your family moved around a lot because of your dad's job at GM and the family eventually ended up in Kansas city. And it sounds like it was really hard on everyone. And you especially were having some like terrible panic attacks. Um, how do you reflect on that transient time in your life? And how do you think it affected like the, the fabric of your family and also like the way that you would make friends or connect with others?
0: Um, it's a great question. I was really young when we're moving around, um, through a lot of that. So, you know, I think, um, most kids have the common interest of just, you know, being into whatever it is that children are into be it cartoons or sports or whatever. So it, it was relatively easy for me. So I feel like a lot of the impressions it made on me were maybe more subconscious than conscious. Um, I would definitely get upset having to leave every couple of years, you know, have to leave schools and, and friend groups and stuff like that. But again, I was so young that it was always very easy for me to adapt um, into new circles. Whereas someone like my sister, who's five years older, I think is a lot more difficult for her around like high school age and stuff. But looking back on it, I definitely think that it planted some sort of seed of, you know, wanderlust in me or wanting to travel and or being um, sort of just traveling, feeling very natural um, to me. And it's funny because it was all within the Midwest. So in a way, though we were moving around a lot and traveling a lot, it was all kind of in this one region. Um, mm-hmm. So it kind of, I always felt it planted this seed in me of wanting to travel. But at the same time, um, I never really went anywhere exciting, you know.
1: Yeah. So on the flip side of your experience with panic attacks, um, it sounds like you were able to like come out on the other side of that pretty tough experience of, like, being over-medicated. Like, you got off the medication, you learned to manage your emotions, became a vegan, became generally healthy. Can you describe how, like, that experience changed you mentally and physically?
0: Yeah. You know, I think at that age when you're you're going through certain things and no one really knows exactly how to diagnose it, Um, you know, I think kids and and young teenagers especially... um, are very complex characters and and i certainly was and i think you know i'm not unique in that but you know i was having trouble in school and um a hard time sitting still and learning and having to be in one place all day every day and i really couldn't wrap my mind around the work and um i guess at the time in the early 2000s you know add was being thrown around a lot and um, it was kind of this new thing on the scene and so I was going through different medications for that. Um, like, you know, uh, I was taking like a generic Ritalin at a point and And, um, you know, I was on a lot of different um, antidepressants, like Zoloft and um, Lexapro, I remember two of them. Um, and I was on sleeping pills for a, a time. And, you know, and no disrespect to my parents, I think they were just trying to do what the doctors were saying uh, would be best for their son who was having, you know, whatever, emotional problems or problems learning. It's maybe now more in the general public consciousness, you know, that some kids just aren't good at school. They have to learn in other ways or in more hand-on ways or something like that. But doing all of those things, and especially looking back now, um, I wasn't really necessarily aware of the fact um, that these drugs were were making an impression on me or changing me. And I didn't really know just how, you know, sort of subdued they were making me feel until I was off of them. And, you know, I remember taking like the Ritalin and feeling like very – uh, what we would call high, you know, but at the time I didn't register it as like, I was getting high off of this thing, but, um, I'd feel very up on that. And then, you know, the, the antidepressants and the sleeping pills would make me feel very down. And when I got off all of them, it kind of felt like, you know, someone had lifted the veil and I was sort of, you know, seen, seeing life in this way I hadn't seen before. And the way it changed my life, you know, that just kind of, um, happened at a, a, a moment in, in my teenage years where I was sort of getting into, punk music and going to shows for the first time and um, putting on shows with my friends. And so it just felt like um, the whole experience was, you know, meant meant to be or something like the end of those, uh, you know, prescription drugs going into this next part of my life that felt very sort of organic and and liberating.
1: Hmm. It's interesting to read that you grew up in a conservative house, but not a religious one where like... For me, it was like the flip side of that. Like mm-hmm. we were religious and my parents were very liberal. So um, I'm wondering, like, how did your parents or at least how do you think your parents reckoned with that distinction?
0: You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I I think maybe there's something to the Midwest mentality where, um, how do I word this? I there, there certainly are a lot of religious people in the Midwest, um, but I also think there's a lot of people who just don't have too many strong opinions um on things like that if, if that makes sense it's just a.
1: is that like a swing voter well or an undecided voter
0: maybe in some cases but for my parents not really um yeah I don't know you know my parents both worked a lot and they they worked very hard so I always found that you know they they th- that's kind of what they were most concentrated on that's where most of their attention went to and things like church, you know, I don't know, they happened on Sundays and my parents worked all week and didn't want to have to then go to this other thing. And, you know, for a lot of my extended family, um, they were religious and they would practice religion and just kind of at the basis of everything. But for my my immediate family, yeah, it wasn't, um, it wasn't too, too much a part of the conversation.
1: Um, so I'm one of those people that I don't, when you say Kansas City, I don't know if you mean the state of Kansas or Missouri. So you were in Kansas City, Missouri, and now you live in the state
0: of Kansas? Um, so it's very confusing, and I understand it being confusing to outsiders. I, the only people who I think really can wrap their minds around it are people who are from here, but maybe the best analogy for it is it's sort of like Brooklyn and Queens, but if <laughs> if Queens was in New Jersey and Brooklyn was in New York State, um, Though they're right next to each other and they kind of exist as one, but then the laws are different. So I grew up in Can- a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri, but on the Kansas side, and uh, so Missouri is literally like three or four blocks away from where I'm at right now. So I'm I'm I am in Kansas okay. City, Kansas, which happens to be in Kansas, but right across a road that's literally called state line sits Missouri.
1: I need a chart.
0: Yeah, it's very strange and I don't you know, it's one of those things that like if you're driving <laughs> south on State Line Road, then that means that you are in Kansas and if you're driving north on it, um, then that means that you because you're in the right lane, then you're in Missouri. And yeah, it's a it's a wildly confusing thing that only kind of Wow. It, it doesn't really make sense at all, but I think people here are just so used to it. But yeah, it's kinda like Brooklyn and Queens okay. a little bit.
1: Cool. Um so you said growing up where you grew up in Kansas, but a suburb of kansas city missouri yeah. um you said growing up there was really cool because there wasn't a lot of stuff to do so we had to make our own fun which is a really good lesson to have learn early in life and how do you think that lesson of like making your own fun as a young kid translates into your adult life
0: um i think the biggest lesson something like that taught me is that despite you know, what others might think or might say or expect of you, you can always do something yourself. It really sort of embedded this DIY aesthetic into me and my friend group. So then when we went out into the world, you know, it just felt like we had this lesson that, you know, regardless of outside influence, you know, we we could always make our own fun and, and sort of build a community around us. And, you know, it's something I remember when I first started putting out music, my first band would get bad reviews or something, and I would see other bands around me get bad reviews and say, like, oh, we, you know, we're going to quit. You know, no one likes us. But coming from the sort of scene I came in, I'd be like, what are you talking about? We just have to go do our thing and build our world, and people are going to want to be a part of it. So I think that's what it really taught me.
1: Well, That's cool. So reading about Kansas City's DIY scene, it was small, Um, I can relate to this. You had to, like, get along with everyone, you know, Uh because it's so small, and you can't, like, have any enemies, so everyone's best friends. Um, How did that first scene of people, friendships, and connections help set you up for the kind of musician that you wanted to be and the kind of community you wanted to be a part of?
0: Um, Well, kind of like I was saying earlier, you know, because it was just, like, a handful of me and a couple of other weirdos, you, you know, we were sort of left to make our own fun and left our own devices, and It wasn't so much about that we were all into one genre of music it was just about the fact that we're all into music you know so one person in our friend group could be into hip-hop and the other person could be into jazz and the other person could be into weird performance art or something but then we would throw together these sort of like eclectic shows that you know everyone could do their thing and it was just about doing something creative so then when i went to a place like new york which was big enough to have certain, you know, individual scenes where there was like the punk kids or like the indie rock kids or, you know, the, whatever I would just float from scene to scene very naturally just because I'd grown up around so many different types of creative people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think it just really set me up to, not really distinguish between genres and to just sort of follow, you know, creativity where, wherever I could find it and um, sort of be interested in a handful of different things.
1: You've mentioned in a couple of interviews that there's this like sense in the Midwest that the people think they're not as good or smart or witty as those on the coasts and people who leave are kind of like giving up, like, you leaving, you were giving up on Kansas, how prevalent do you actually see that? And did you feel that kind of sense when you moved back?
0: Um, You know, I moved back right around the time that I was turning 30. And it felt like I'd been away long enough to sort of see it with new eyes. And you know, I had gone out and made a name for myself. So coming back, um, it just felt like a lot of things that I couldn't see when I did live here, I, I was suddenly able to see for the first time and I think it took going out and doing those other things to finally sort of realize that which was I think was really important for me because growing up I never really related to a lot of you know the the midwestern mannerisms and um despite the fact that there were a lot of creative people and I I grew up in this sort of cool environment and found a lot of cool people you know people get bitter in the midwest is what I've really found and it's something a lot of people don't like to talk about but I've always found that it's kind of a silly notion and um you know, I think this is represented by other bands or artists from the Midwest, like it's kind of the mission statement of like a band like The Replacements or something, feeling bitter about the coast and that some people are born, even if they're born poor, they live in the sort of a land of opportunity, and that doesn't really exist in the Midwest. And so I think there's just this kind of quiet bitterness that takes place here, and um, it's something I really never related to. So it took me getting away from the Midwest to to fully appreciate it. I don't want to, you know, I love the Midwest a lot. And I think uh, a lot of times where you come from, it's, you know, you can end up when you're in it feeling very distant from it. But then when you're away from it, you know, you really, uh, you you miss it. And there's certain things about it that you really miss. And yeah, I really like it a lot, but I do think there's a sort of thing here where people just don't, they just think, oh, you know, no one's going to want to hear my band or or hear what I have to say. So I'm not even going to try. And I just, I think people should be over that notion.
1: I don't really have a question about this, but when you left Kansas City, you took a train ride
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and just like your description of of the train ride and just like the whole notion of like taking a I don't even know how long that train ride must have been. But like that's pretty cool and lines up with uh, with I think your personality.
0: Yeah, thank you. It was yeah, it was very, very fun. And, you know, at the time I'd only taken one flight in my life and when I was like 14 years old it was the only time I had flown at that point. Yeah. And so I was just, I was too afraid. It literally made no sense to me after a lifetime, you know, I was 18 years old of, of spending the whole thing in the Midwest. I I, I could not wrap my mind around the fact that I could get on a plane and be in New York city in two hours. Like it, that's right. It was such a jarring thought right. that I just, I couldn't experience that I had to get there slowly.
1: Are you a nervous flyer that comes up a lot for you? I think.
0: You know, it's funny. I was talking about this the other day to a friend because flying used to be this thing because I, I really I didn't do it really as a child at all. And then I started to have to do it for music. It was something that was so scary to me in the beginning. And I've now just sort of grown fascinated by it. And I was, I was talking with a friend yesterday who asked if I have ever been in a prop plane, which I haven't. And it, it's funny. I'm, I was born in Lubbock, Texas, and Buddy Holly is from there, and he died in a plane crash. And so I have this... I have this fear that if I ever get in a prop plane like he did, that I'm going to die because I'm also born uh, in Mm. Lubbock. Um, But I flew on my first helicopter last year, which is probably equally, if not more, scary than a prop plane. Um, Oh, gosh. Yeah. But I have this, like, sick fascination with flying now where, like, it it scares me. But because of that, I want to continuously do it. Like, I'm always trying to make an excuse to get in a plane. I don't know. It's some, like, sick thing. And I think what I like about them is it feels so unnatural. It feels like some sort of phobia in the same way that like people would have a phobia with like a spider, you know, which I also have <laughs> that phobia, but but <laughs> there's something that feels very do or die about being in a plane. Like, okay, I'm up here. I'm yeah. disconnected from the earth. I'm disconnected from communication. And there's just some sense of urgency that I really like about it. So I ended up um, having a lot of success with like working on music while up on on a plane. Um, that I really liked because it's kind of like cuts out all the bullshit distractions of life and I just Mm. am able to lock in.
1: So after you moved to New York, um, you joined the band Woods and were touring and it was around that time that your best friend Jamie, who Mm -hmm. uh, you wrote a song for on the new record, died of an overdose. Um, At the time... How did his death change your outlook on basically everything, like your life, your music, your lifestyle? And also, how does Jamie continue to stay with you?
0: It's a great question. Um, You know, when you're that young, and I met Jamie around when I was 18, 19 years old, and we're sort of inseparable for the last year of his life. When you're that young, you know, the stereotypes are a stereotype for a reason. And you really do sort of look at yourself as this immortal character and, you know, no one's gonna kill you or your friends. And of course you've heard stories, you know, about people like, you know, whatever, Kurt Cobain or Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, all these different rock stars who have passed away um, from substance abuse or sort of reckless behavior and you you don't think it'll ever actually happen to you. And then having it happen that close to me, you know, Jamie, I saw him hours before he died and we would hang out every day for, you know, the wow. last year of his life leading up to his death. and. He was like an older brother to me. He was like this sort of um, legendary um, person around town. And everyone had an opinion on Jamie. You either really loved him or hated him. He's just one of those big personalities. You know, you had to have some sort of opinion (laughs) on Jamie. And you know, I really loved him, but of course at times I could also hate him. Um, But you know, he struggled with addiction and I was definitely way too immature and way too young to know what to do with that. And because he was older than me and I sort of looked up to him like this older brother, I sort of just went along with everything. You know, I, I uh, it's mm-hmm. behavior that certainly since then and, and especially now, you know, I'm a lot older now and I'd like to think that I've matured a lot since then, but um, it's behavior I would never really put up with. But, you know, we were just young and, and, you know, he had substance abuse problems and it unfortunately played out the way that it played out. Um, but he was a very big personality and he, he meant a lot to a lot of people. He meant a lot to me. And he's one of those people that when he died and it rocked my foundation and it showed me that indeed people are very mortal very incredibly mortal and in fact life is very fragile um yeah just sort of changed everything for me and he's 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 been an inspiration and and sort of a muse of mine ever since and it feels like twofold sometimes it feels like i'm sort of doing this um you know because he can't and then it also just feels like he just he inspired me at an early point in my life to to want to play music and someone i looked up to so You know, when I wrote the song, Jamie, he had been dead then about, he was just hitting around 10 years. And because he's made his way into so much of my music, I wanted to finally sort of explicitly put a name to it and have a song that's just, you know, sort of for him.
1: It's so beautiful. Thank you. Really lovely. Um, And then you also started The Babies with Cassie Ramone, which I read has been like credited with boosting your songwriting confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about building... Your confidence in yourself as a musician during that time and also like how it might have crept out in you, like beyond your music. Like how did becoming a better songwriter make you a more confident man?
0: You know, Cassie played a big role because I had been in woods for a while and I was learning how to be on stage, but kind of as this, um, you know, hired gun bass player who just sort of like sat in the back and, you know, wasn't really the face of anything. And Cassie had a band of her own called the Vivian Girls that were really taking off at the time and kind of inspired this whole scene. And Cassie, in my mind, is very legendary and this kind of iconic front woman. And then we were roommates and we started this band together just kind of as fun, but it ended up sort of, you know, having a life of its own. And being able to share the front of the stage with her really sort of was like a baby steps for me, you know, or like really like my training wheels. And I'm very internally grateful to Cassie for that you know of sort of splitting the role of a front person with me and you know i felt like we did that for a couple of years and then it, th- those were namely my songs in the babies you know her songs were mainly say for her band and girls and so after so long of sort of co-fronting this band with her but they're mainly my songs i i kind of started to get the feeling that i could do it on my own and again you know it just felt like baby steps and then and no pun intended with the band name being the babies uh-huh. <laughs> But yeah, so when I, I went out on my own and I started to perform under my own name, I, I felt geared up and ready for that. Um, and it's funny now because, you know, it's like the 10,000 hour thing. The the more you do anything, the more confident you're going to become at it. So I'll even look at, even though I was in the babies for five years, when I look at the beginning of my solo career and I'm up there alone for the first time, like I seem pretty nervous and scared. And there's definitely moments that I still get nervous and scared, but I really like performing in front of people. I, I really like entertaining an audience. And I think something it's done for me in my life and for my confidence has just made me be able to reel it in. And this is maybe a little off subject or, or not what you're getting at, but like last year, my dad, he, he passed out and I had to, and he was fine. It was totally okay. He, he just, he passed out and um, he carries this like heart rate thing that he puts on, he can put on his finger and he happened to have it in his pocket. So after he passed out and again, he was totally fine. But we took his heart rate with the the little reader, and his heart rate was normal. And then we put it on me, and I was acting completely calm. But my heart rate was through the roof. It was so high. And my dad oh my was God. like, my dad was like, this you you must be having you know, like, how are you so calm?" And I was like, I think it's just years of being on stage and I've just perfected this thing of when I'm incredibly nervous or scared, I can just like right. I can just push through it somehow and just appear normal.
1: Bury your feelings, Kevin. Yeah,
0: just bury my feelings. Just bury my. That's what it's taught <laughs> me is to suppress all my feelings and smile.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, speaking of your dad, I want to hear. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your house uh, that you you buy your house in Kansas in 2015, and your dad actually flipped your house. It's what he does for a living, um, and you bought it as an impulse purchase, which is my favorite way to buy a house. Um, what was that process like? And like, also, what does it mean to you to like live in a house that your dad kind of like brought back to life?
0: Um, these are great questions, by the way. I'm loving all these. Um, oh, thanks. But uh, it, it feels great, you know. I really, I, I kind of feel like this house. I'm gonna have it forever in this way. That even if I just keep it as like a place that I go to to write at times, or, um, but you know, I bought it yes on a whim, and it's it's all because. And I've told this story a lot, but I I really love this story because I was on tour with my friend Kate Lebon, and um, Bradford Cox from the band Deer Hunter was a fan of hers. And he offered for us to stay at his place um, after our show in Atlanta. And this is at a time where I'd been living in New York and then I would moved to L.A. and I didn't really know other musicians who really owned houses, you know. Everyone just sort of lived in apartments and paid rent. Right, on
1: the coasts, no one can buy a house.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I just came from a long line of musicians who were just complaining about how expensive rent is and how no one can own anything. And, you know, which embeds a certain fear into you, especially as like a sort of starving artist where, you know, you get sort of paid pennies and you're living in these huge cities and you just really don't have much to show for it. It's a real grind. So anyways, we went to Bradford Cox House after the show to stay and... I was so blown away by and it's not like he lives in a huge mansion or anything, but you know he has this beautiful house that he, he, he had just decorated it really great and it was like a cool older you know southern home and I was just sort of blown away by the fact that, oh like wow, this person bought this off of playing music and good for them, and wow, he can just you know go on tour and uh, come back to such a nice place. It just seems so appealing and I asked him about it, you know, I was like, why'd you buy this house? And he told me that Kim Deal from the breeders, told him that if you ever get enough money to buy a house anywhere, even if it's in your hometown or where, you know, it's just somewhere cheap that you got to you got to go ahead and do it. And so I just took that advice quite literally, you know, like four months later, I got this offer um, from Dead Oceans and I, I signed with them and I got my first record advance ever. So I just went ahead and did it. And it's funny. I was actually in Australia two years ago and I was playing some shows with the breeders. And when I first met Kim, I told her that story and she's like, oh, Johnny Bonebreak from uh, X, you know, he told me to buy a house. And so (laughs) I hope I'm just existing in a long lineage of artists who, you know. uh, Paying
1: it forward.
0: Yeah, pay it forward. And but, you know, as an artist, it really does do this thing. And I I was so happy to, you know, so I bought it and then I, I rented it out to a friend for two years. Um, while I still lived in Los Angeles but then when he moved out I moved back and I've been here ever since but it really does do this thing as an artist especially you know I I dropped out of high school I don't have too many life skills the way I made money before this was delivering food on a bike in New York but you know if it all went away tomorrow God forbid knock on wood but at least I would have this house to show for it and like I have a place and to live and it sort of um it, it frees me to just sort of focus on the creative aspect of you know being alive.
1: <laughs> the new album Sundowner has references to your current feelings about the nighttime. Well, at least like at the time that you were writing the record, um, where you are now in, in Kansas when the sun goes down, you're left with your own thoughts, and that can be like kind of frightening, kind of unsettling. Um, so you've had a lot of different songs about nighttime and the dark. And I'm wondering if like starting from when you were like a little kid, can you talk about the evolution of your feelings towards the dark and towards nighttime?
0: Sure. You know, as a child, I guess, perhaps I was afraid of it in very early childhood, you know, just as a lot of kids are, but, you know, fascinated by it as well. Um, but I definitely hit a thing in my early teens where I would stay up all night and, you know, reading and writing and listening to music. And I became such a night owl. And, you know, then my adulthood, when I went to New York and I hurled myself into the city that never sleeps, there's definitely a couple of years where I, you know, I'm waking up at five or 6 PM and staying out until the sun comes up and, um, So, you know, in New York, especially, but then also in its ways in Los Angeles, the nighttime really represented like this, you know, socializing and going out constantly and constantly going to shows. And when I'm on the road, like it's very nocturnal, you know, it's, I I was saying this the other day, I kind of realized it, but, you know, when I'm on tour, which is usually the better half of the year, I don't see the sunset. I don't see the sun go down. You know, you enter a venue during the day and then you kind of emerge in the early morning or late night. So it's been a very like nocturnal existence for me since you know um I was probably 18 years old so moving back here I became way more attuned and in rhythm with the sort of weather and the the pattern of the sun for the first time and um the night sort of began to represent this thing since I sort of isolated out here and don't have like a strong friend group or you know a lot of temptations or opportunities to go out at night I'm just sort of faced with myself so The essence of this record kind of began with these new set of feelings of, you know, the night just meant this sort of like reflective time where I was going to sort of have to look myself in the mirror and have no distractions from, you know, whatever I was going through.
1: All those times you buried your feelings. Yes, all those times on stage I buried my
0: feelings just (laughs) came leaping forward.
1: Yeah. It sounds like this little four track Tascam? Is that how you say it? Tascam. T-tascam. T-tascam.
0: Tascam or Tascam? Um,
1: Tascam. Tascam. Does it have like a nickname? Like, can we just call it 424 or something?
0: Yeah, yeah. 424, it's like an R2-D2 situation.
1: And you considered it your songwriting partner throughout the whole process. And how did that particular machine help you interpret these songs and like the sonic palette of the record? I don't know if that's accurate or not.
0: You know, it really inspired me in a lot of different ways. You know, I kind of bought it um, like what I was just talking about, where I suddenly sort of faced with myself and didn't really have any distractions or anything to do. I bought the four track just randomly because an old friend of mine was selling it, you know, needed some extra cash. And, you know, I thought like, oh, I haven't tried messing around with a four track in a long time. It might be a nice thing to have and just sort of like learn some basic recording techniques. I've got nothing else going on when I'm back home in Kansas. So you know i bought it sort of on a whim and i kind of just thought like oh you know maybe i'll do some cool covers or like some songs i've already released into the world maybe i'll do like four track versions just just for fun why not but in getting it i sort of just stumbled into this whole new collection of songs which became the record and there's something magic that happens with the four track where you know you put on headphones and you're listening to yourself kind of go into this tape machine and it's got this certain warmth and this sort of ghost-like quality where it's almost like you're hearing this different version of yourself from a different timescape or something. It's, it's this sort of eerie, beautiful sound that I'm just sort of like addicted to. I've always loved it. And so it just inspired me to want to write and to write into it and to write with headphones on. And it was completely changing my writing process. And then also the limitations of a four track where a lot of other times when I'm demoing, it's on a computer or I'm just, you know, just demoing in my head where I'm like, Oh, and then I'll add this and I'll add that. But I was into the confines of just having, you know, the four tracks and trying Mm -hmm. to make something beautiful with those limitations. It kind
1: of like stretches out your creativity. Yeah. You have limitations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, you know, With my last record, oh my God, like if you look at the personnel on that album, it's like a mile long. There's so many people who play on it. And those records are really fun to make too, you know, but with this, I wanted it to be sparse. And I also was getting very into the idea of space um, because I'd moved back to the Midwest and there's so much space. And I wanted that to be represented on the record by, you know, having as little as possible.
1: So you're sitting right now in the shed and it looks... Beautiful in there, but it seems like it was like very different when you were working on this record and you have this Really cool Description you wrote on the website of like the whole process that everybody should go read. It's beautifully written Um, But with the shed it sounds like and I don't know if you're gonna agree with me on this or not You went through this like total emotional detox while working on these new songs So how did it feel to you? And then how do you think working in that shed at the time um, where there was like no heat, no cooling, uh, so it just sounds like really extreme, how do you think that added to the experience?
0: Well, yeah, you know, you're completely right. The way the shed looks now, you know, it was, it was a very bare bones just shed at the time. Now it's got this pine wood up and it's insulated and there's a heater and air conditioning unit. But at the times, yeah, it was just this sort of skeleton of a shed. And... You know, I think just having a place to work that was mine, um, even you know, if it was really hot in the summer and really cold in the winter, was such a big change for me. Again, after having lived in New York and LA for so long, where like practice spaces were always kind of this gross, disgusting thing you had to share with other bands, and like there was you know always a, a band next door playing like you know Metallica covers or something that you had to deal with, and so having a place that was just completely like sort of secluded, and even if it was sort of subjected to the elements and kind of gross in its ways was really nice. And so just having a place to work and to kind of have purpose and to go out into every day and think like, oh, you know, it gave me moving back to Kansas city where I had no friends and I was pretty isolated and it was sitting juxtaposition next to this life where, I, you know, I do have a lot of friends on the coast and I go out and I do this thing, um, it kind of justified me coming back here. You know, it was so bizarre that I was I was moving back here, but I was like, but I've got the shed and I'm working on music, you know? So <laughs> I would I would kind of go out in it every day and there'd definitely be moments where I'd be like sitting in like a swimsuit, drenched in sweat, working on this four track and it kind of sounded like <laughs> shit. And like, you know, I'm like, man, if someone could see me right now, they'd be like, what are you doing? You know, like, what? why did you make this life choice? But, you know, I think, you know, most musicians can just agree on or artists of any kind, just having a sort of like, quote unquote, studio space, just a space that you can kind of make your own. And, you know, is just um, conducive to to making work is really important. And that's what it was for me. And yeah, yeah, continues to do that, too.
1: I was watching a stream of yours. And you and people wanted Katie to come and sing with you. And you said, Oh, I think she's in the shed. And in my mind, I heard she's in the stable. And I was like, (laughs) Oh, that's so great. Kevin and Katie have horses. That's
0: really funny. Um, there are no horses. Um, but you know, we have a lot of stray cats who run through the yard, so um close. Close. Maybe we'll name them like horse. A horse.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Black Beauty yes. and Sea Biscuit. Yes, perfect. <laughs> um, speaking of Katie, uh, this record, Sundowners. Is it the first record that you've sort of like worked on while she's been in your life as your partner?
0: Yeah. You know, the end of Oh My God kind of overlapped. The end of writing Oh My God sort of overlapped with the beginning of writing this record. So there are a few moments on Oh My God that are sort of reference Katie or about Mm. that. Um, But then this one is a much larger scope of what Katie and I, you know, have experienced or were experiencing at least in that like first year or two of dating. So, um, so I mean, there's a little on, Oh my God, but it's, this one's mainly the Katie record.
1: That's cool. I don't know if you have been with a musician before, like a songwriter before, but like specifically Katie, like what did she add or how did she help grow your creative process or impact the sound of this record?
0: Funny because I think Katie and I, we're pretty hands-off with one another when it comes to that sort of thing, or at least I think we think that. But then looking at her record and knowing that some of the songs are about me and then looking at my record and knowing that some of the songs are about her, you know, there's moments where Katie would say, Oh, I realized I started to sing this, This what do this thing that you do. And then I'd see a live video of myself and I'd be like, Oh, I, I kind of, I've become more emotive with my singing phase because I've watched you do it. You know, you're just going to naturally... <laughs> be influenced by whoever you're you know you're you're dating and you're spending so much time with and of course the two of us being songwriters it's yeah you know we've naturally like our collaborations for example like it's so natural it's the most natural thing in the world for us and now it's almost like you know people come to it as like if it's its own band or something like oh when you know when are the two of you going to do this thing or you know we want to hear the two of you do this song and but there was no thought in it of like, oh, let's let's start covering songs and maybe people will like it. It's just it's just so natural, just because it's, you know, music is like a language and it's we both just speak that language. So it's like we dip into, to another language for a moment, you know.
1: Cool. All right, this is a weird question. Let's but do it. So I was thinking about this um, and thinking of the song "A Night at the Little Los Angeles." which was inspired by your decor around your house, but it's also, I guess, a fictional story of people running a California-themed hotel Mm -hmm. in Kansas who have actually never been to California. And I've also read that you're working on a short story, which is so rad. Um, But that reminds me of, like, Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara in Waiting for Guffman, where they're, like, travel agents, um, but they've never left their town in Missouri And then it kind of like leads me down this like Midwestern American Gothic type of stuff, like Mm -hmm. Fargo and sharp objects and like stories like that. Like the Midwest is like where weird shit happens. Definitely. Um, I don't know how, how do you relate to that notion of like creepy Americana in the
0: Midwest? Um, I don't know. You know, it's something I really like a lot. And I think it's, it's sort of back to me describing me and my friends making our own fun as kids. You know, I think that sort of mindset when you're out in like the open plains and you're out in a place where there's no ocean and there's no waves and there's no, I don't know, like there's none of these iconic big buildings like New York has them or, or whatever, you're sort of left to your imagination and the imagination can really fly. And it's a really interesting thing when, you know, people sort of pair those things next to one another you know like that's why i like the idea of the hotel like a a california themed hotel los angeles themed hotel in the middle of rural kansas because they're so starkly different you know i've been making a lot of music videos out in western kansas about a four or five hour drive away and i was doing the drive recently and there's this amazing sign outside of Manhattan Kansas which also I love I love when places are named after you know like a bigger city like Miami Kansas or Manhattan Kansas like a
1: or Pittsburgh Kansas
0: Yeah exactly Pittsburgh Kansas <laughs> Paris Tennessee like I I love I love those sort of alternate Paris, realities Tennessee. Um yeah. but there's this sign outside of Manhattan Kansas that is this big billboard of LA and it says we have flights to LA and I love that they advertise that and like but you see the billboard and it's it's showing a plane like landing in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, behind it's like a big cornfield, you know, I just the juxtaposition of them is so starkly different. And I just I really like it. So I just think that Americana thing, you know, it's like it's just people have time and space to be really imaginative, you know, to, to really mm-hmm. let their imagination run wild.
1: You are a painter, um, what made you get into painting and how does it impact your creative side? Like, how does it feel to paint versus how does it feel to play music?
0: Um, painting is like strictly a hobby. I mean, I have sold some paintings, but it's funny even you saying that, like, I hear you're a painter because I don't feel like a painter at all. Like, I, I would I would never tell a real painter, like, oh, I'm also a painter, you know, um, <laughs> though, you know, I do love to paint. And for me, it's like pure therapy. And, I, you know, something like music is too, but then it just happened to become what I do for a living as well but painting is one of those things i remember i was had to go to this um outpatient group therapy when i was in high school for my panic attacks and i had this like suspended panic episode that just lasted like basically months you know and so i was going to this this, oh. this therapy and i just felt like i hadn't calmed down in so long and i'll never forget it was so distinct where they had us and and, you know you do group therapy and you all talk and then you know you'll play games or whatever and there's one moment where they're like okay today we're going to do art we're all going to like draw something you know and not that like my drawing was any good or that you know nothing really came of it other than just we were working on something i remember kind of when the teacher like ended the session you know was like okay you know time for the next thing I kind of came out of like, as if I was, had been meditating or as in sort of a trance, you know, and I kind of realized like, wow, that's the first time that I, I sort of was taken to another place and had forgotten about, you know, the things that were giving me such anxiety. And so it's still strictly that, and, you know, music, like I said, is that for me as well. And it's just, you know, I think art is just, it's such mental health food, you know, it's, it's, Mm. it's so good for the soul and, um, I always find myself wanting to paint when I've sort of exhausted other things, other creative things. Like if I'm really, I've just been a lot of time on the road or in the studio or something like then I'll want to go paint, go do something Mm. different.
1: How do we buy one of your paintings?
0: Well, I still have an Instagram called Kevin Morby Arts and Farts. (laughs) So there's that. And I think if anyone really, I've sold paintings on that before. And, you know, I've been doing this thing that's been kind of taking the place of painting where I've been decorating all my album covers and selling them. So I've been selling them on my my merch store. And um, I had initially planned for Sundowner to do a painting for every song, which maybe at some point I'll get around to. But instead, I've I've sort of just been decorating album covers. But if someone really wanted a painting, maybe they could go to Kevin Morby Arts and Farts and then, uh, you know, get in touch.
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, In preparation for this interview reading so many articles about you, I noticed that there are many amazing photos of you. Like the artistic direction always seems so intentional. Um, How do you feel about getting your picture taken? And what is some, like your involvement in how it might look like, like it just seems like each of them are way too good for like one person yourself, like not, to not be behind it?
0: Um, Well, thank you, number one. Um, Number two, I think in the beginning of my career and like when I was in the babies, photos were always just such an afterthought or just something we wouldn't really concentrate on and you know, just kind of like hand someone a camera and take a quick shot or whatever. And then in the early years of my career, you know, playing under my own name, um, you know, I just kind of set something up quick. and. Um, I don't know, just kind of learning from mistakes really where I would just not put too much effort into a photo shoot or to what I was wearing or what I was trying to convey and um, just do something quick and always be met with the end product and be a little disappointed like, oh, I should have done more of this or I should have done that. So, you know, it's like anything, I think. You know, there's a time in my life where I wouldn't buy, you know, strings and then I would break a string on stage and I'd be like, "Why didn't I buy strings?" you know. And you just eventually learn that, you know, you need to sort of invest some sort of like effort in, in thought into what you do. And so I think with stuff like visuals around my record, be it like press photos or or music videos, it's just, you know, it's it's all about what I want to convey. Like I'm thinking like, "Okay, there's going to be a picture of me out in the world." And I want it to represent my record. What does that photograph need to look like? And sort of brainstorming from there and then also picking photographers who I really admire and and I love their work. And if I'm lucky enough to work with them, then, you know, I've done stuff like for, oh, my God, you know, we we would storyboard ideas for a really long time, you know, before taking photos. And, um, you know, you just kind of got to look at it as like a real project and not just some toss away thing.
1: I like that thanks Um, so this is called The Lightning Round alright we're gonna have a lot of fun learning about you I can't wait ready here we go what was the first song you learned on the guitar Uh,
0: When I Come Around by Green Day
1: of course (laughs) Uh, Batman or Superman
0: Batman definitely
1: what is your karaoke song
0: Uh, Mr. Jones by County Crows
1: (laughs) everyone knows all the words to that song exactly and it's always on the radio. Exactly. Um, dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order?
0: I don't drink coffee.
1: First album you bought with your own money?
0: I think, um, I guess the self-titled Backstreet Boys record.
1: <laughs> uh, or but, I didn't see that one coming. Or also, <laughs>
0: um, the album that changed my life really is Third Eye Blind's self-titled record. And I think I bought those two at the same time, or my sister did or something. Oh, wow. First <laughs> concert. No doubt.
1: Last book you read?
0: Um, last book I read. Uh, it's by Aaron Cometbus, uh, postmortem. Aaron Cometbus.
1: What is your dream collaboration?
0: Dream collaboration, Patti Smith.
1: Beatles or Rolling Stones?
0: Um, rolling Stones, and I accept all repercussions for that answer.
1: Wow, we don't get that very often, actually. I know. Uh, flying or Invisibility?
0: Um, f- flying.
1: Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: Um, Istanbul, Turkey.
1: All right, that's it. Okay. That's the last question.
0: That's, this Easy. A, this is a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed Thank this. Thank you.
1: And again, congratulations on the new album. It's so rad.
0: Thank you. Uh, and,
1: you know, when you guys get your horses, please think of me.
0: Yes, absolutely. It's a pleasure meeting you.
1: Basic Folk This Week is produced by the very famous... And very kind, Sarah Wardrop. Our social media producer is Laura McCarthy. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is proud to be on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes anywhere you get your podcasts and at cindyhouse.net. I am Cindy House, and if you liked this podcast, please send it to a friend and share. Thank you. And I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye.